Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and John McManus. How are you, John? Hey, how's it going, Al? Hey, Jim. How are yeah, things? how are you? <laughs> um, uh, well, they're a little bit... I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit frazzled, but... Um... <laughs> Just seem to be going hither and thither everywhere at the moment. But no, broadly speaking, okay. And and um, working out some very interesting things about the Germans uh, at Anzio and Monte Cassino, which has been fascinating. Yeah, good. Excellent. And John, your term's just coming to a, a, a close, and and then you're off to a, a conference, right? Yeah, it is. So I'm, I'm giving final exams this week, and then uh, also going down to New Orleans to the World War II oh, Museum for their international up. conference. Yeah, that's Amazing. coming up uh, the the end of this week. Which, mm-hmm. As you know, Jim, that's a that's a blast. That, that's so much fun. Yeah, it is. It's always really good. Do you, who's going this year? Who of your mates? Uh, let's see. Craig Simons, I think, is going to be there. Oh, I'll send him my best. Absolutely. Will do. Kara uh, Vuick will be there. Alex Ritchie. Alex Ritchie will be there. That's right. Yeah, looking forward to seeing her. Don Miller. Don Miller is going to talk about, um, you know, the, the making of Masters of the Air, which, of course, is oh, wow. going to be really cool. I think Keith Lowe is going to be there. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, it should be a pretty good crew. Oh, we'll have a great time. Send them all my best. Yeah, we will do. Absolutely. Now, John, um, we uh, well, we haven't spoken in a little while. The last time we talked was about Tarawa, which was extremely well received by the listeners. And I, I've been poking around looking at British medicine, combat medicine, and I thought I'd, I'd, I wanted to pick your brains, talk to you about the, the subject of that on the other side of the pond and what the, what the Americans are doing in terms of the, their combat medicine, where they've got to, what they're trying to achieve, who the who the movers and shakers are, and all that sort of stuff, and also how they organise it on the battleground, because you always have a lot about corpsmen and stuff. But 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 how do they fit in, and are, you know what's what's the, what's the number per platoon or whatever? You know how does it all work? So to start us off, what what do they bring from the from the First World War in this in this regard? Because obviously, like the British, the British have had a go, you know, and have some sort of vestigial systems left in place that they then build on. Are the, are the Americans sort of doing the same thing that they've got the way they did it last time round, and they're gonna. They're going to kind kind of do that again and with refinement. Yeah, they're they're kind of focused on three things: disease prevention, of course, which is obviously always in play, but especially a, a hangover from the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, you know, that happens during and after World War One. They're always thinking about first the battlefield first aid, uh, how they can efficiently treat casualties and get them to excellent medical care as quickly as possible. Uh, they have a very good sense of of how this needs to be done. And then third, dealing with shell shock or combat fatigue or whatever we're going to call it, and and sort of on the cusp of the war, their answer to that is we di- we didn't pick up all these defects in guys in World War One who ended up with shell shock who just weren't 
you know, constitutionally wired to be there. So let's prevent it on the front end. So they were, um, you know, as the draft amps up before U.S. entry into World War II, um, they were rejecting something in the order of about one out of every three inductees, potential inductees, either for some kind of physical malady, but often for a perceived psychological problem. Of course, as you guys know, this didn't work at all. And a lot of these same folks came back into the cycle later and served. But so there was a bit of a three-pronged approach before the war as to how they, they felt you know, they, they would work medicine when and if they got involved in World War II. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that they're trying to anticipate potential combat fatigue cases before they've actually happened. I mean, how can you possibly know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you, you get combat fatigue because you've been in combat too long. So obviously, if you don't go into combat, you should be all right. Well, and it, because they were thinking of it as shock, like shell shock. So, so why are you shocked and I'm not? And 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 what is it about us? And 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 of course, it's an era where there's this belief where uh, people are constitutionally prone to things, whether racial ideas or or whatever. Uh, it, you know that that's a kind of popular notion <laughs> that that uh, you you and I know it's a matter of fatigue. That if we're if we're at Anzio for sixty straight days, getting pounded by by Anzio Annie you know, it's going to have its effect, right? I mean, I don't think they have as good a, an understanding of that as much as they studied World War One. Um, you know, and obviously had experienced it. And I don't think they were drawing something of the right lessons. And they even weren't at the beginning of World War Two because how they're treating it changes in, in the course of the war. Well, and it's as much to do with the fact that psychiatry is sort of relatively new, isn't it? It's pushed through in the 20s and the 30s. You've got lots of Freudian people. You know, th- those ideas are very much in the in the fore, in in psychiatry and so there's there's a sort of there's a sort of idea isn't there that if you've had something terrible happen to you in your childhood Battleshock will will revive that memory and make you have a breakdown rather than someone is trying to kill you over and over again which is surely enough for a human psyche to be getting on with as well as that time your dad told you off or whatever or whatever it is that's supposedly lurking in your psyche i mean it's of its time isn't it that i as you say john it's completely of its time and goes with the psychiatry of the time the 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 thinking the the smart thinking and they're disabused of that very very quickly of course aren't they but you know, they, they weed, like you say, it's, they weed out, I mean, it's millions of people are turned down on the grounds that they probably haven't got the nerve, they haven't got the right stuff. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Al, that, that uh, psychiatry and psychology, which is confusingly is much the same thing, but psychiatry, the difference is you would have had a uh, medical degree, uh, so you'd be, you know, a little more on the, the physical side, I guess, too, but but yeah, I mean, they're all over the place in terms of how they they uh, treat mental illness or emotional issues or whatever. And so they couldn't agree among themselves. And there aren't that many mental health professionals. There's not that much commitment to it. Um, they're not even sure that's where it belongs as things go on. I mean, because it is fatigue once we have you know, World War II going on. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting uh, how this happens. Now, they also think that uh, that there are like character defects that are going to be a problem once you serve and that we can figure out in a pre-induction physical where, where a physician sits down with you and asks you a series of questions and somehow we can determine you're not fit for service somehow. And partly what they're looking to do too, honestly, is to to weed out gay people because they believe that's some sort of deficiency and, you know, I mean, they even say it. God, you can just imagine the questions, can't you? Yeah, like one of which is, do you like girls? And, you know, and so some people take it as a joke, like, uh, <laughs> well, of course, duh, you know, because to them, they would have never considered anything otherwise. Other people, you could imagine that'd be a very uncomfortable question. 
So it's, it's of course, many, many, many decades before we begin to understand someone's sexual orientation doesn't have a thing to do with how courageous you are or what kind of soldier you can be no, or whatever. No, and nothing. And, and, uh, but in the, in the 30s, I mean, of course not. They don't really get that. Or what they think of their mother or any of those things. Because, yeah. Because, because at the other end of it, you do get, you, certainly the British Army, they ask those kind of questions to gauge people's propensity to aggression and what kind of soldier they're going to be in the airborne end of things. They ask them those kind of questions as well because they're trying to find the aggressive people. And if you're too fond of your mum or whatever, they'll decide, the boy. They'll, exactly, they'll, decide, they'll decide you're unsuitable. You're not going to be sufficiently aggressive. But basically, everyone's groping around in the dark looking for answers here, which to which there probably aren't any, is, is, the, is the truth. I mean, the big sort of middle point is is the slapping in Sicily, isn't it? <laughs> with, yeah. with Patton? Yeah. yeah. Yes, ab- yeah. absolutely. You know, and that guy's got, well, it turns out he's got malaria, the first guy, doesn't it? But, but, yeah. But, but he's in there and he says says to Patton that he just feels a bit tired and, and that doesn't wash. But <laughs> when are things starting to change on that kind of psychology side of things? Oh, I think uh, very quickly. early in the war. Uh, there, there is a sense that, you know, there aren't that many mental health professionals. So if we have a division size unit, we're lucky to have maybe two uh, mm-hmm. somewhere in play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very early on, uh, you know, at Guadalcanal, at Buna, wherever, they're figuring out, hey, we, we've got a problem here. You know, these folks have passed through all of these you know, all the training we've had, they've been determined suitable to fight and all this, and yet we're still in, ending up with combat fatigue cases. Uh, what do we do? And it, the crisis point in the Pacific, I would argue, uh, happens in the Battle of New Georgia in the middle of 1943, when the right. 43rd Infantry Division... So it's the same time, actually, isn't it? Roughly the same time as what's happening with, with Patton in Sicily, or you know, almost the exact same month. Um, the 43rd Division goes into combat really not prepared for what they're about to face, especially the, the night dimension to fighting. Right. Um, and so they really, many of them get very psyched out by the, the, the conditions, the, the, the Japanese, there's all the, there's these sort of apocryphal stories that the Japanese have these kind of samurais in robes roaming the lines at night with swords, chopping people's head off and everything. So there's a number of guys who are just completely breaking down. And so the 43rd is evacuating thousands of guys initially And their viewpoint is these guys are shattered. They're done. We can't do much with them. So where the turning point is, um, is that they figure out, you know what? We can treat people and we can send them back and they're going to be better off for it. Um, And also, we've been way too lenient on what we're diagnosing as combat fatigue. It could just be I'm really frightened out of my wits for a couple hours. And and if I have good leadership, then I'm going to be sort of in the right direction and with combat fatigue the symptoms t- tend to chase after the expected symptoms don't they so it, it, you know people if it's reported that you'll get off if you go mute people go mute and if you're if you go deaf you'll go people go deaf and the, the, the symptoms sort of follow the diagnosis in a very very strange way because it's a psychological uh, condition the british get quite sensitive to that quite quickly and they also i mean i always think there's a parallel with how they deal with malaria in the british army the way you deal with malaria is you do it as forward as you can because you don't want people coming right out the line. You don't want to waste time bringing people out the line and sending them back to where you might never get them back from. That what you do is, you you know, these forward treatment areas they have for malaria are not unlike the forward treatment that the, the British do for people with combat fatigue, where, you know, you're basically given sedatives and made to sleep for 48 hours, given a clean uniform, given a good meal. The psychiatrist talks to you and then you're given a pat on the back and sent, sent back to your unit because you've <laughs> Because you've had a kip, you know, basically you've yeah. had the you've caught up on your sleep because it's it's so linked. It's it is so tied up with exhaustion 
they find in the sort of most yeah. cases, don't they, rather than people have actually completely crumbled. And it's completely understandable, isn't it? I mean, I mean, we all, we've all been really tired, and you just get ratty and short, you know, and a bit emotional and all the rest of it yeah. in a way that you don't if you're if you're feeling completely on top of the world. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the psychological side of things and sort of keeping an eye on people was done certainly in the British Army by the by the battalion commander, his number two, and the padre that was attached. Yeah, you know, so the the padre, whether you were uh, the men in your battalion were regiment. Field artillery company, yeah. whatever, whatever. The padre had a, a pastoral role, which sort of went beyond sort of holding church services and fields. And certainly with the Sherwood Rangers, you know, Padre Skinner and Stanley Christofferson and Stephen Mitchell is number two for much of that period in the last year of the war. You know, they they would just keep an eye on people, and if they felt that someone just nerves were starting to fray a little bit, they'd whip them out and make them intelligence officer for a bit or put them into B echelon for a while or send them on a course. So, you know, that was another classic, you know, so you go and do a course back home for a week or something, you know, completely pointless, but would just give you a chance for a break and a change. I mean, is that sort of thing going on in, in, the, in the US Army as well? Well, so much as it could. I mean, it's personnel management, usually when there's good leadership, that can observe such things or has the luxury of doing so. But, it, but if we're in Hurtgen Forest... Uh, for for ten to fourteen meat grinding days, I don't know that we have that luxury anymore, and it's just sort of mass right. cas kind of thing. Um, but I do think there's much the same kind of role for the uh, for the clerics. I mean, Jim, I think that's a great point because um, a chaplain during World War II is kind of a medic on some levels. That's where he's spending a lot of his time. I mean, you know what I mean? And so it's like, and and certainly that means being a mental health professional in terms of counseling and being there for soldiers, but also on the on the physical side too. Um, you know, you, you spend a lot of your time at the aid station or at the field hospital or working with the wounded or helping evacuate them or, or uh, blessing the wounded or whatever. It's so, yeah, you, it's interesting. So you see the faith and you see the, the sort of science side of it, too. Yeah, that's a really good point, because actually I forgot to mention Dr. Hilda Young. Um, it was always, it was his nickname was Hilda, but but he, he was uh, the MO, the medical officer for the Sherwood Rangers. And him and, and Padre Skinner were super tight. I mean, they were just absolutely in each other's pockets, and Skinner would physically help with the medical stuff, and Hilda Young would would help Padre Skinner with the kind of more pastoral side of things. So, you know, obviously one had a, had a bias of, of influence, but, but they were both kind of working together. So it sounds to me like it's a very similar model, really. But this depends, of course, on officers, you know, to the extent to which they believe in combat fatigue and all that sort of thing, don't they? You know, which brings us all the way around back to pattern. You know, that, that some officers are, are conservative in their view of this whole thing, that, that it's malingerers and coward, cowardice and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, of course, in the interwar years, that's what a medic does in a, you know, in, in peacetime. That's what a regimental uh, 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 medical officer does in the British Army. You know, he's, he's the guy you go to see to if you've, you know, if you think you've got a sore throat or whatever, or you think you need to be excused duties. That changes once you're in action, obviously. But, you know, if you've got a conservative regimental commanding officer who doesn't believe in any of this, he's putting people on charges rather than getting them well, right? Yeah? I mean, too often, yeah. But that's going to happen probably, you know, early on and then it's left behind. I mean, pretty soon, I would say institutionally, uh, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy... Yeah, they because they've been thinking about it in the interwar period too. So I think you do certainly have these these kind of dinosaurs who are who are uh, you know unsympathetic, but I think they're getting pressure from above institutionally uh, in the armed forces that this has to be treated and dealt with. So Patton, in that sense, is a bit of an outlier, I think. And of course, maybe he's not a good example because he's pretty senior. 
versus, say, a battalion, a regimental commander or a company commander who might affect us maybe a little bit more as a soldier. But, you know. Yeah, she's not having to do that kind of man management directly, is he? That's the thing. No, and it's just it just sort of happens to come out in his case with a couple of anecdotal encounters uh, in a hospital where he's going. You know, this is a kind of interesting to, to remember that. I mean, he's going there to help the wounded and help them psychologically, ironically. I mean, isn't that what any general's there for? I mean, he's not a doctor. Um, and of course, this this couldn't have been easy for him or any other general to encounter the results of what he had ordered. Um, and so there were some generals who just could not go and visit. There were others like him, like Simon Bolivar Buckner, uh, who just, you know, haunted the hospitals in a way because they, they felt that that was a big part of what they ought to be doing to their credit, I think. But uh, we don't know how we'd react until we're there as a senior officer, right? And, uh, uh, you know, so Patton himself, some people think, uh, you know, Patton himself might have been suffering from combat fatigue in some levels too. I don't know. Or maybe just exhaustion. Yeah. Who knows? Do you think this sort of this development in the understanding of, of combat fatigue, do you think that's bottom up or is that top down or is it a bit of both? It is a bit of both because the, the, the Army and the Navy have been thinking about it a lot in the interwar period from the experience of World War I, especially the Army, of course. Um, and then, of course, the war begins and we're confronted with the realities of this. And, and we're constantly on the fly trying to figure out how we're going to treat folks. How are we going to deal with this? Um, how do I mean, and this is still true. Is this a physical problem? Is it a mental problem? Is it an emotional problem? Uh, what What's really going on here? And it's it's kind of all the above on some levels, isn't it? I mean, it, I personally think in my own kind of, I wonder in my own kind of non-professional way, you know, we talked about exhaustion. I wonder if this is a byproduct of sleep deprivation. Like you said, Jim, when, you, when you're really tired, you know, your motor skills now are not as good. You're cranky. You're this, you're not the same person. And I wonder in combat, you know, we're just not sleeping the way we ought to be. And we're lucky to get three hours a night. Uh, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? I just, I, I just think people don't appreciate enough how much sleeping patterns are totally knocked on the head by war. You know, I mean, just take a fighter pilot in the Battle of Britain, you know, you're going to bed late because you're young and you're going to the pub and getting pissed and what have you. And then you're getting up at sort of crack of dawn, which in July is very early and, and by September is a little bit later. You're snatched, you know, you're getting maybe three, four hours a night and then you're kind of snatching it during the day on deck chairs. Well, that's not ideal, is it? And, and you know, ditto in kind of Normandy. I mean, you know, sleeping in a hole. What kind of sleep is that? Well, the very long days in the midsummer in, in Normandy do not help, do they? You know, it's dawn at four, isn't it? And and, and gets dark at sort of ten o'clock at night. So you've you've no time at all, really. You're fighting every hour that daylight sends. John, the thing I wanted to ask though, to just move on a, a touch, is we've talked a lot on between us about how in nineteen thirty-nine they're essentially there's a there's a tiny US army. Uh, you know, it's a it's an imperial force in the Philippines where it's officers running local soldiers, and then there's a sort of think tank border force sort of thing in the US itself. I, I'm assuming that the US Army Medical Department has to go through exactly the same kind of colossal expansion, but obviously they're dependent on ex a very highly trained manpower in the form of doctors. So what do they do? How do they get the people? So the, you have this kind of skeleton of what's going to become an entirely fleshed out body. So both the Army and the Navy had very well-developed, very consistent medical corps. Uh, with with physicians and nurses and and the the infrastructure was there, so what they had in place by 1939 was appropriate to the smaller peacetime force. Mm -hmm. Once they mobilize, 
partially what they're going to be doing is, of course, recruiting young doctors from every walk of residency and, and interning and medical schools. I mean, if you are a medical, somebody in the medical pipeline uh, in 1942-ish or whatever, I mean, there, there's a very good chance you're going to end up in uniform, regardless of how old you are. But if you're under 45, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, um, there's one exception to this, though, that I, I should point out, which sort of dovetails what we discussed with Matthew Delmont recently. If you were an African-American nurse or something like that, no, we don't want you because of the color of your skin, you know? So, so again, here's, here's the, the sort of luxury of our racism in a way uh, that, that black nurses have to basically beat down the doors to get in to the armed forces, even as we have a nurse shortage, um, you know, it's absurd, but these were something of the reality. So there's also, there's, there's a major recruiting effort to get women who, you know, most nurses were women to get women to volunteer because you couldn't draft them the way you could male medical professionals. Yeah. Uh, so there's an enormous kind of coast to coast effort to get white nurses to, to go and sign up with some level of success. The other thing they're doing sometimes is transporting like lock, stock and barrel hospitals or, or whatever in civilian life into military life. An example I'll give you is the 20th general hospital which is basically medical personnel from the University of Pennsylvania and a like a local hospital there in Philadelphia. Everyone who could serve conceivably is basically going to be transitioned into uniform, introduced to military life, and continue with the same job that they had done in civilian life that now is going to be done in military life. They serve in, uh, in Lido in, uh, in India. And they're, they're their main hospital that you would have as a, for your medical care if you're in Burma in, uh, you know, in 1944 or even before, you know, so you have that too. The other thing at a lower level, and this is what fascinates me to this day is of course, as you're mobilizing millions of young men into uh, military service, you're figuring out MOSs for them, aren't you? So in some cases they are tapping, uh, young men who have entered basic training or whatever to be medics, to be the, you know, like the field medics, the, the combat medics. And, uh, like, how do they do that? And, and part of it is just this sort of introductory psychological makeup or whatever. This person seems to be a caregiver. I'll give you an example from a later era, but it, it adheres to this too. Um, one of, one of my friends was a combat medic with the first cavalry division in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, he went through basic training like everybody else. And he, he always wondered, why did they send me to Fort Sam Houston to become a medic? Uh, and it turned out he was perfect for it. He was very good at it. And he thinks that on the survey that they gave him, his answer to the question, if you're driving, you know, on a, on a dark road and you saw an animal, would you break uh, or would you simply run over the animal and go on your way? He said he would break, he would, you know, try and save the animal. He felt that that answer was why they slotted him to be a medic. I don't know, but uh, that's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's yeah, like, it's why that's me? Fa that's fascinating. <laughs> what, what was it about me? God, that's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. But there were conscientious objectors as well. So, cause the, cause yeah. you know, after all, um, Desmond Doss is the, the, you know, incredibly famous corporal in the army who saves all sorts of people, you know, scores of people's lives, doesn't he? It's the most, most extraordinary yeah. story. He's a conscientious objector, isn't he? So they're doing that too. So they're gravitating to the role too, right? Definitely. Yeah. If you were a conscientious objector, there's a very good chance you're ending up on the medical side of the house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. No doubt. But even for many who weren't, you know, there, there were some people, maybe the, the, the way they score in the, on the uh, army general classification test, 
you know, with maybe better answers to anything possibly medical. I mean, it, who knows? Um, it's a mishmash of personalities, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll take a very quick break, then we'll come back. This is, as ever, fascinating stuff. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, where Jim, John, and I are talking about medicine in the U.S. Army. Yeah, I've got a question. Go on, Jim. Well, so what I, do, I remember when I was doing all that work on, on Normandy, I remember that, that one in four battlefield casualties were being returned to the battlefield by Normandy by the U.S. Medical Corps. <sighs> and that was considered a really high rate. I mean, you know, just sort of groundbreakingly good. And the frontline American troops were getting arguably the best medical care anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I suppose, how do they get there? What are they doing? And how much is the uh, the armed forces in the war part of the kind of sort of pioneering development of global medicine, but certainly medicine in the USA? Absolutely. And penicillin, the importance of penicillin, of course. For sure. Yeah. I mean, from the War Department on down, there is an enormous commitment uh, in the United States to getting the best medical care for service people. So every the, the entire military infrastructure is set up to reflect that. And you're at a moment in history where medical knowledge is such that now this is possible. Yet disease prevention can really be done on many levels. Now, to be sure, we lose some people to disease. But when you consider previous times in history, um, you know, the, the loss to disease is fairly small. Um, and also, there's a, there's a been a lot of lessons learned from World War One on good battlefield medicine and care, um, what works, what doesn't, how you can evacuate people. Of course, you know, Jim, as we talked like the vehicles, um, yeah, I mean, vehicles are going to help you with this too, how we evacuate people. The, the new element of aviation to this too, uh, the, the idea of flight nurses and flight medical personnel uh, to, to evacuate wounded and care for them and treat them. All of this. Yes, and they, they're doing that a lot in the Far East, aren't they? And, and, Tons. And the Pacific. A, a lot of these little planes, that, th- these little planes that come down. I can't remember what they're called. Oh, you've got the, you know, you've got the smaller ones like the L5s and all that that maybe are going to be playing That's Leyte it. and Luzon. That, uh, that we got one or two bad casualties deep in the hills and come down to land and get them out. You, Merrill's Marauders, you know, you get yeah. that in Burma too. Uh, but more commonly, you know, like let's say it's Saipan or something. Uh, you know, we've got 40 wounded guys and we've got three planes that we can see 47s or whatever that are specially fitted. We can evacuate them back to Oahu, um, you know, to better medical structure there, maybe back to the West Coast or maybe to Australia, you know, wherever it happens to be. You've got that in play, too, and a commitment toward it because you could have just had no commitment to it and saying we, we need planes for combat. The hell with them. You know, I mean, so instead, it's here is a major priority for us to give the absolute best medical care. So any unit, really, no matter the orientation of the unit, probably has a medical dimension, like a medical detachment, uh, and, and often with an actual physician, but if not that, a you know a medical tech of some kind who's right there with us, whether it's engineering, signals, you name me an MOS, there's a medical dimension to it right down to that grassroots level. But there's a pragmatic reason for this, isn't there? Because you want to get guys back in, in the combat zone. Yeah. But there's also a morale issue. Which oh, is, yeah. <laughs> yes. if you, you know, you, how, how are you getting all these Americans to fight in an atoll in the middle of the Pacific or up Monte Altuzzo on the Gothic line? You know, wh- wh- what is it that's driving them? Well, one of the one of the key things is to make sure that, of course, as we've just talked before, that morale is absolutely as high as it possibly can be, all things considered. 
And knowing that you've got medical support is obviously a key factor in that. It's huge. I mean, that is a big part of morale. It's a big part of what you expect as an American citizen that has now drafted you to go to every corner of the globe. Now, the least they could do is give you decent medical care and preparation too in that in that sense so it's um and also you know there's there's an attempt to train soldiers in first aid though as we all know you're kind of dissuaded from stopping to help your buddy because the medics are supposed to be doing that but we all know that's not always practical so you would have had some training toward that too even as an average soldier and and so uh, it's really quite ubiquitous that the whole medical orientation to these armed forces i think is a fascinating aspect of this because of what it communicates that the average person and their physical body matters. It matters to the government, certainly pragmatically and maybe cynically to recover them to continue the fight, yes, but on a bigger societal level, the expectation that they must have this commitment that the individual matters and that the government needs to commit some resources but, to but that. It's fanta- fascinating though, isn't it? That the, the tension between, or the, the way that those are two ideas that aren't in opposition to one another, but at least are in tension. The idea that what the army wants is it wants you back and it wants you fixed because it needs to use you because, because you, you know, but also what the state has to do is show that it, show that it cares. And the fact that these are able to work in sync and that medics, Lots of the medics must know that the, the cynical argument for their presence, which is to patch men up and make them useful again, but are also medics because they're caring people. So there's the there's this this permanent. I mean, in a, in a way, Joseph Heller writes about that in Catch Twenty Two. You know about the, the the way he just talks about medicine and that because Yossarian has this ongoing relationship with with the the field hospital there. Um, I mean, what the, the figures around this are extraordinary. It's fifty thousand doctors recruited into the you know 83 women as well which i think is really interesting 15,000 dentists the army nursing corps expands from 1,000 nurses to 52,000 and they're all commissioned as officers by june of 44 the the, the nurses which i think which i think is really interesting and you've got 1500 dietitians th- physical therapists that's and, amazing isn't it yeah it is. yeah 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 and one of the thing, figures i stumbled over though cuz you talked about disease earlier on out of 918,298 men treated, the numbers in this article I'm reading say only 585 US soldiers died of disease. In the entire World War II? Or that's, what it's, that's, what it says, that's what it says here, which, which strikes me. I mean, it's, so, it's probably larger than that. Um, I imagine because- it is because you've got malaria, but they're saying, this, this article saying 700 malaria pet patients dying. You know, I mean, it- from across the whole of the Pacific, that sounds. Like an- I think there's more than that in the in the in the macro picture, but yeah. maybe in that particular nine hundred thousand sample, yeah. yeah. But that would be kind of representative, sure. Yeah, which is amazing. Oh, it is, isn't it? The, and I mean, again, from this thing from coming from a small sort of skeleton structure into a thing that can actually deliver on these gigantic numbers. I mean, the British Army's what seventy eight thousand people now. That's a pretty good rate, isn't it? Of uh, delivery health-wise. But it's amazing when you contrast this with, with the German approach, you know, and that, that sort of incredibly cavalier kind of, you know, if they've got a stomach, we just let them die, that kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, coming back to my great hero, Hedley Verity, who's, who gets wounded in the plane of Catania, and he dies because he's picked up by the Germans, and he gets German medical care as opposed to being picked up. And, you know, had he been picked up by the British, that shoulder wound with a sort of crack rib pressing on his lung and all the rest of it. It wouldn't have gone gangrenous because they had penicillin by that point. He'd have probably been shipped back to a field hospital, dealt with pretty quickly, given tetanus jabs and, and penicillin, then put on a boat to Malta and it'd have been absolutely fine. 
It's because he's, he's travelled to Caserta in really bad conditions. You know, he's operated on not very effectively. Um, it goes bad. He dies of septicemia, effectively. Well, he dies of massive hemorrhage, but I mean, on, brought on by, by septicemia. That's because he's, he's unfortunate enough to be picked up by the Germans. And in the case of the Germans, of course, on the, on the eve of the war, they have some of the best medical knowledge uh, on the planet. I mean, there, there's no problem there. The problem is now under stress in this massive war, which is crushing their manpower and everything else. And also and supplies. Uh, they, yeah, exactly that. And, uh, and just the nature of the Nazi regime hmm. caring nothing for anybody, really any, any person on any individual level, all of this creates that kind of perfect storm. Whereas I think, you know, what, what you see on the, on the allied side, the Western allied side is certainly already the similar kind of medical knowledge and infrastructure there now expanded toward a military purpose, just as we've seen maybe our automation, in play or engineering know-how or whatever. Well, here's the medical side and then that kind of societal commitment, not just the U.S., but Britain, Canada, Australia, you know, to getting good medical care to the soldiers so much as that's possible. Um, This is a tremendous commitment. And the Americans are really quite stunned when when they see otherwise in their enemies, certainly the Japanese who are under tremendous crisis and don't have the same kind of medical infrastructure, uh, they're amazed at how ho- they're horrified, honestly, at at the the paucity of care. But also among their allies uh, in China, for instance, um, you know, a wounded soldier in many cases during the war is sort of looked down upon um, as useless and is mistre- deliberately mistreated in a way so that the person will die. And it's it's the Americans can't understand that. Uh, of course, all this is happening in the context of what the Chinese are suffering, which is a much more horrible war than the Americans could ever envision. And they don't have the luxury of the resources and whatever. And so uh, it's, it's really the, the Americans are kind of when they're looking at the, the medical care side of it, they have, they come into the war with these assumptions that everybody must have this. <laughs> uh, it's almost similar to their food, you know, Oh, everybody must eat this way. Uh, and, and it's not that way. I mean, and so, you know, and, and, and I think, I think that's quite disillusioning, but also eye opening for many. Yeah, you know, in the course of the war. Well, I remember this, this this quote by John Slessor, later Air Chief Marshal John Slessor, and at the time he's number two in Italy, the air forces in Italy, and he's complaining about Allied soldiers, and he's saying, you know, a German soldier can survive for four days oh, on yeah. what an American British soldier would expect to have for one. You know, we've just got to be tougher and harder and more like the Germans. But he's wrong. You know, he's just plain wrong about that. Yeah. You know, that's nothing to be proud about, that, that, that you're expecting your German troops to survive off literally nothing. I mean, that's, that's a really bad thing. You want, them to be, you, want, you want them to be fed decent, balanced food. Now, you know, K-rations and stuff are notoriously boring, but, but the whole point is to have balanced food. You know, you get your protein, get your fiber, get your vitamin C and all the rest of it. Um, and, and that's what they're doing. So there's much more care on that front. And of course, it's the um, it's 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 the Americans that are, p- are pioneering these these ration ca- these ration cases, the cave rations, and different types of ration boxes you get with that balance of of nutrients that you need on a daily basis and calories and and all the rest of it. I can't remember the name of the doctor, but Ansel Keys is the the guy. And there's a lot of research that goes into the creation of those cave yeah, rations. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not just sort of randomly picked upon is it i mean it's it's, right. it's all very carefully thought out it's not about being tasty it's about being functional yeah just for the k rations that is yeah but you know it's interesting because i was talking to someone the other day who's, who's just sort of picked up from a shipwreck off the philippines sixty thousand coca-cola bottles <laughs> hmm. 
But that's important to American troops. Absolutely. Yeah, you can have that, and that on your naval ship you get ice cream and all this kind of stuff. Uh, John, <laughs> on the supply side, how are they Are they doing big blood drives back in the U.S.? Oh, huge. How's that working? Absolutely, yeah. Great point, Al. Um, so blood drives are such a big part of this because as the war – I mean, they already knew coming in, but as the war unfolds, they're getting a, a very good sense of how important plasma was, of course, for first aid, but specifically whole blood. Uh, because the number one cause of death in combat wounded tended to be bleeding out. So as that proceeds, that's one thing the American public can do is to to help our, our service people overseas by donating blood. So I'll give you just a sort of microcosmic example. One of the most iconic baseball broadcasters at the time was a guy named Red Barber, who was the, the uh, broadcaster for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, Barber led in the course of the war multiple blood drives uh, among his radio audience in the New York City area, not just Brooklyn, but also it spread beyond that. Barber became very, very well known for raising untold amounts of blood that who knows how many lives that would have saved. I mean, that's what he dedicated his life to doing during World War II. So do they freeze it and then send it overseas? They do, exactly. So now they here we come to the equipment. You could refrigerate it properly and you could transport it such that it could be used. So all of this is part of the whole sort of logistical administrative side of the war that we were constantly talking about, that now this is possible. I mean, maybe you could have had somebody uh, getting the word out about a blood drive in uh, in the 19th century, but as to whether you can really have the <laughs> the technology to, yeah. to preserve it and get it where you need to be and then the know-how of the personnel to use it and all that. So it becomes this kind of convergence in the 1940s with all this know-how, this ability, the transportation nodes and all that to get it to where it needs to go because somebody giving blood today in Baltimore, um, if it's not used till a week from now in Normandy, you know, that could be a problem, couldn't it? So yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they know how to do this. And so uh, the American public are doing that. And uh, one of the things that you probably would have done on the home front uh, as a woman, especially, is rolling bandages. Um, that was considered to be a, a, like a very kind of what, what women could do to, to help the war effort sort of thing. So a lot of housewives or, or actually wives of military personnel, that's a big part of what they're doing because, uh, again, you know, bandaging becomes so important. I mean, it's a very mundane thing, but it's easy to run out. Um, and so you need somebody to, to prepare all of it. But, uh, but the blood drives, I think, are really top of the line. In terms God, of fascinating, of, yeah, and 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 they're they're freezing it and shipping it within a matter of days. So, so oh, there's, yeah. a con- there's a constant stream of blood, basically, constant. to all the fighting the, fronts, going over the Atlantic and across the Pacific. That's absolutely yep. amazing. Is it being flown over? Presumably, it's also it's being flown over. Uh, so much as you can do that, uh, but some being shipped. So it's being melded then with what you're raising in theater too. I should point out point that out too that if you served in a medical unit there's a very good chance you would have donated blood probably many times during the war um, wow. because that's where you're getting a lot of your blood too is yeah. other service personnel yeah uh, including a lot of the people who are with medical units who are just right there you know so uh so yeah i mean it flown shipped whatever it's it's getting to where it needs to be and it's saving so many lives it's just just we'll never be able to calculate that God, and, and John, just before we finish, tell, tell us about the corpsman. You know, is that mm-hmm. is that one pl- platoon? Is how does how does that work? Yeah, typically. So so, the, and even the terms were different. So, um, the Marine Corps had no real medical infrastructure of its own, so it relied on the Navy uh, for all medical support from 
the platoon level all the way up, you know, to division level and, and like hospital ships and whatever else. But so you would have a Navy corpsman, usually a pharmacist mate, who's attached to a Marine platoon. Um, and so you'd have multiple corpsmen per company, say. Uh, and the joke, of course, since the, Na- the the Marine Corps famously hates the Navy or whatever, you know, it's part of the Navy. The only sailor you you had any hope you had any hope for or any regard for was the the corpsman kind of thing because he's your combat medic, you know. So in the army, because I remember uh, John Bradley was famously yeah. the flag raiser was a uh, well, and actually, believe it or not, he was not one of the flag raisers, but uh, but uh, oh. that's one of the things that's come out in recent years. But yeah, he was he was a navy <laughs> corpsman, and that, that was very typical. Okay. But he would have been but right there, there in the sharp end. Oh, he's right yeah. there in the sharp end. And so as a as a navy, if you go into the navy in World War II or any period, and they ask you to be a corpsman, you should have uh, the scales drop from your eyes because what that really means is you're going to be with the Marines, yeah, almost certainly. And you're going to be very much at the ultimate sharp end of war. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and the equivalent in the army, because the army obviously had its own medical infrastructure, was that that uh, often called either aid man or medic. Uh, you, you'd see both terms. Oh, yes, and a medic. It's, yeah. yeah, it's the same level, probably platoon level, maybe multiple guys per, per company. And you are right there with the infantry or whatever. But so, so say you're, you're in, I don't know, Company F of the 118th Infantry. Are, are you a medic? In that unit, you're or attached. are you in the you're attached? So you're part you, so, of the United States Army Medical Corps. You, well, by MOS, you are. But the, the way this would work typically, like within a combat division, you would be a member of the medical detachment, which could be a battalion or a regimental asset, and you are attached then to the rifle company, F Company One Eighteen, or whatever it happens to be. So, so what would the unit be called? Say attached to I don't know the first infantry division. Well, you'd have the medical detachment. Say uh, so you'd have the first medical battalion. Uh, that's part of our. That's our divisional medics. And how many would be? So um, you know several hundred, and it's okay. that's your basic medical infrastructure for the division. But believe you me, it's augmented by medical detachments of every subunit you could possibly imagine, plus attached medics from outside the division, the field hospitals, the general, all that structure. But in terms of what we've got individually in the Big Red One, uh, they're probably coming from the 1st Medical Battalion. And so in the the medical detachment, which is like a company-sized unit in any regiment or battalion, is parceling out those assets, whether it's the medical aid men slash medics to the rifle companies, or whether it's battalion surgeons and, and whatnot, if we have a battalion aid station, which we do. So would the medic feel like he's a, a medical part of the medical detachment or would he feel that he's a company F kind of guy? Uh, probably the latter. If things are working the way they ought to be. Um, now at the beginning of the war, he may be derided by the other soldiers, especially if he's a conscientious objector as just a pill roller, as a, you know, cowardly yeah. guy who doesn't want to, to fight as things go on. And we see that this guy is probably the most courageous person in the unit because yes. he's going out and saving lives while the rest of us are taking cover. Um, he is revered. And so the dynamic, I think, is fascinating because the medic, a successful combat medic, which most are, are held arguably in higher regard than anybody else in our combat unit and really often has um, more sway in personnel decisions than the commander on some levels as to who's going to be evacuated, who's not. Um, Any respected medic is going to have that sway. He's also going to be dealt with differently. We're not going to have him carry certain kinds of equipment. Uh, so we're not giving him extra ammo, for instance. Why? Because that means less medical supplies he can carry, and that 
could matter, right? Um, so he's not going to go on certain patrols, maybe on any patrols. Uh, there's there's a really interesting. You guys have seen Band of Brothers, like every episode. You probably know it inside out, like I do. Like we're all nerds, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> remember the the um, remember the episode where where uh, Doc Rose, Shane Taylor's yeah, character, is is featured so prominently. And you remember how uh, Sergeant Martin is about to take take a, a group out on a combat patrol. And yes. uh, Doc Rowe is just sort of gravitating about to go along with the group. And Sergeant Martin stops him, takes him aside and says, hey, Doc, why don't you hang back here? And I think that, that's really brilliant filmmaking because it shows in that moment of film exactly the correct role that the medic would have had. And a grizzled infantry sergeant would have recognized. I don't need my medic right up there looking for trouble with the rest of us. I need him within striking distance in case something happens. That's exactly how you would have been treated. And your medic would be a PFC or a corporal? Um, probably a Tech or... 5, uh, so equivalent to a corporal. Um, if he had more rank, then he'd be Tech 4, Tech 3 as, as things go up. But the, the typical guy attached to a rifle company or a tank unit or whatever is a Tech 5. In the, the, the Navy and the Marines, in Navy, he's a pharmacist mate of some kind, you know, whether first, second class or whatever. So it's a lower ranking enlisted person. And, and they, they perform the same role that um, paramedics do, basically, in, in civilian life. Oh, it's fascinating. They're incredible. Uh, well, I'm glad we've had this conversation. Yeah, another rabbit hole. Yeah, among many, right? I want to know more. I want to Me know, too. find out more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks, John. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope that's um, stirred your brain cells. Um, we'll see you after the festive period, John, if not before. Um, uh, have a very Merry Christmas. And I think we'll see you before Christmas. I think we, we will. Oh, yeah, we'll yeah. see each other before that. I, I just get this thing that basically the minute December start, starts, I think, well, that's it. <laughs> I know. It's all, it's all over till mid-January. Exactly. We're not going to get any sense sent out of like anybody. You're, like you're in this nether world until then. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, we'll see you soon, well, John. Thank, yep. Thanks for and listening. Have fun everyone. in New Orleans. Yeah, have fun in New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Cheerio. See ya. <laughs>